0: This is an Irish independent podcast. Warning, today's podcast contains scenes of a brutal murder which some listeners may find distressing. Today on the Indo-Daily, the hunt for the mastermind of a very bloody murder. In 2005, the body of 43-year-old mother of three, Irene White, was discovered in her home by her elderly mother. She had been stabbed from behind as she stood at her kitchen sink.
1: The 43-year-old separated mother of three was stabbed 34 times in her family home, the Ice House on Domain Road in Dundalk, on the 6th of April 2005.
0: Little did we know that a Garda re-enactment of the crime would lead to a tip-off from Australia, and huge repercussions for the case. There has been a circle of people involved in Irene's murder and I hope that the Garda get them also. The case doesn't end there though, with speculation that a so-called mastermind who arranged for Irene's bloody end is still on the loose.
1: Uh, We have the killer, we have the so-called middleman, Um, but we've yet to find and have prosecuted the mastermind.
0: I'm Fianon Sheehan, and on today's Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Robin Schiller, news correspondent with The Irish Independent, to find out why Gardy now believe there may finally be justice for Irene White. Robin, you've been writing recently about developments in the case of the murder of Irene White. But can you take us back first to 2005? Tell us about Irene White. Who was she?
1: Well, at the time of her murder in 2005, she was a fairly normal woman. She was 43 years of age. She had three children. Um, she married her husband, Alan White, in the late 90s. They had two children in that relationship, and she had an older teenage daughter from a previous relationship. They split in around 2005, early 2005. And she kept going about her daily life, I suppose, looking after her children, making sure they were going to school read well um, a fairly unremarkable life in the greatest respect of that word. You know, she was well liked in the local community. She didn't go about making any enemies. She seemed very popular. So I think that's why her murder was particularly shocking to people in Dundalk and wider field.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us then about the murder it, itself? Where, where did it happen and what happened?
1: So it happened at the home she was living in, Ice House, which is a fairly big house on a large property off the demesne Road in Dundalk. And what we know from what happened that morning was she dropped her children to school before nine o'clock. She would have spoken to teachers there and returned home and you know, done bits around the house, chores, cleaning, whatever. At 12 o'clock, her mother Maureen, who lived nearby, arrives at the property and makes the fairly unimaginable discovery of seeing her daughter uh, lying seriously injured and fatally injured on the floor. And Gary believed that sometime between 9 and 12, possibly around 11 o'clock, an intruder broke into the house, uh, subjected her to a really frenzied attack, uh, stabbed her to death and fled the scene. And I suppose from there, we have this murder investigation, which is still ongoing to this day.
0: It was a very vicious killing uh, of, of a woman. I mean, the details of it were just horrific. The number of stab wounds that were inflicted on her and so on. Yeah, like any, I
1: suppose any murder and taking a person's life in itself is vicious, but I think the the level of violence and the property involved in this killing certainly made it stand out and the post-mortem would reveal that Iron White was stabbed 34 times she suffered knife wounds to her her neck, her back, her lungs she was stabbed twice in the heart she was uh, stabbed all over really, 34 times, it's really a hard thing to do as well, unimaginable thing to do to inflict so many injuries on a a mother, a person, another human being and I think the level of violence made made it stand out and Gardy certainly believed in the initial stages that it wasn't a random intruder who broke in and subjected her to this attack. It was somebody who knew her who had a personal uh, animosity towards her.
0: The investigation, despite a situation like like that, living in an urban area, the amount of evidence that would have been at the scene, the, the investigation ran into the ground really, didn't it?
1: Yeah, and you know, most criminal investigations, particularly murders, can be long and protracted and take a lot of time to solve. But I think this one, the family of Irene White would've been particularly frustrated with in the early stages. You know, a number of persons of interest were identified, they were arrested, but they had stone clad alibis. They weren't near the, the house or in the vicinity even at the time. So I think that there was a lot of frustration from the family's point of view. And Irene's sister, Anne Del Cassian uh, led this very dignified and you know emotional campaign of making sure her sister's memory was kept alive by holding vigils, giving newspaper interviews, but also keeping the pressure on Gardy and making sure that their focus was very much, you know, kept on making sure that Irene's killers were brought to justice. And you know she kept that campaign campaign going for over a decade, and it certainly bare fruit. Bore fruit for the most part.
0: Irene was such a beautiful girl. She was my sister and I loved her dearly. So many other people loved her as well. I wish now that I can move on a little bit with my life, but I also hope that there has been a circle of people involved in Irene's murder and I hope that the Garda get them also. So basically it runs into sand, but then there's a really unusual development and it, it kind of came on foot of further publicity around the case, didn't it? Yes, yeah, so in
1: around 2011, because, as I said, it ran into the sand, you have the Serious Crime Review Team, which we kind of know as the Cold Case Unit. They take over, essentially, and you know go through the original case file, go through the original evidence, and make certain recommendations through the original investigation team. And at the same time, we have uh, a cold case, I suppose, review on crime call, going back through the murder, making a reenactment, reliving what happened a total of sixty people who are either walking or jogging in the Icehouse Hill Park on that morning. And arising from those interviews we have established
0: that there were three people in the park that are not accounted for and we would be anxious to trace those people. They are very, very important
1: and what we are going to, uh, what we are trying to do is to either implicate or eliminate these people. That worked to a fairly significant extent. Shortly after that, Aaron on Crime Call, Gardy received an anonymous phone call from a person in Australia. Now, they didn't give their details or any specific information about themselves, but they did say that a person known as Anthony Lamb confessed to being the murder of Orym White. Now, Anthony Lamb, at the time of the murder, was a 21-year-old kind of working in between different jobs, working in security. He would have had a drug and gambling addiction and he would have cropped up in the initial investigation because he, I suppose, was an alibi for another person of interest. But he never came to the fore as the actual murder suspect. So Gary started honing in on him, looking more into him in detail. And the folks then shifted on, identifying this witness who made this anonymous phone call and trying to get a witness statement off them.
0: Yes, so it's a weird one. Somebody in Australia makes an anonymous phone call, so there's obviously the difficulty in in, in tracking that person down, but they do. They
1: do, and it's very impressive how they do it because the person at the time anyway didn't want to be identified and different pieces of information had to be put together like a puzzle and they finally figured out that the person who made that phone call was uh, an ex-partner of Anthony Lamb and he had confessed uh, shortly after the murder to carrying it out to her. While in custody, the 34-year-old admitted to Gardy that he'd murdered the mother of three. He said he'd been drinking heavily and taking drugs at the time, and a person had asked him to carry out the murder on behalf of someone else. Lamb was paid a relatively small sum of money for the killing. He told Gardy after he'd murdered Irene White in her kitchen, he said a prayer over her. So Gardy travelled over there, I think at the time was Detective Inspector Pat Murray, who was the Senior Investigating Officer. He travelled over with a colleague and they arrived at this woman's door and some her response was something along the lines of, I was kind of waiting for you or what took you so long, you know, she was kind of, I was expecting this to knock the door.
0: So it was just preying on her conscience she went as far as making the anonymous phone call but almost was hoping that it, this burden would be lifted from her.
1: Exactly, that Gary would kind of go the extra step mm-hmm. and take that statement from her and once they travelled to Australia she talked openly, she gave a voluntary statement about how Anthony Lamb had confessed to the murder how I think a day after Irene White's murder the two of them had travelled to England and she noticed that he was fairly jittery and thought it was only fear of flying. But mm-hmm. it was obviously because the the weight of what he'd done was on his mind. And she said she was willing to go to court to give testimony. And that really, that was a massive breakdown investigation. And within the year, Anthony Lamb was arrested on suspicion of Irene White's murder and yeah. opened up about what he'd done.
0: So you, you, you effectively have a... This chain of events going from the cold case unit to a reenactment to this this prompting a witness in effect to come forward, you then get a, a, a suspect and you, you effectively get uh, ultimately a confession under questioning. Yeah, and I think even before he
1: was brought back to Dundalk Garda station, he started admitting to his involvement in it. Now the statement has to be taken formally, mm. under caution in the station itself, and he admitted to his own role. But not only that, he went further and uh, put two other people into it, this sort of middleman, known as Moyle Power. He puts himself into the equation in a certain way in fairly bizarre circumstances. So in early January 2018, Anthony Lamb pleads guilty and is convicted and receives the mandatory life sentence. Within 24 hours of being sent away, Niall Perra walks into Dundalk Garda Station. Niall Perra is from Dundalk originally, he's a businessman, and he was originally arrested in 2006 for withholding information, so he's certainly been a person of interest and a suspect in the case. And he walked into the Garda Station, and he spoke with Detective Inspector Pat Murray, and confessed all, put his hands up and admitted to his role and what he'd done, and put himself in it, put other people in it, and... Effectively handed himself up and would later plead guilty to murder and was also convicted and serving a, a life sentence with Anthony Lam. Just before 10am this morning 45-year-old Niall Power arrived at Dundalk Courthouse in an unmarked Garda car. Mr Power of Giles's Key Riverstown, Dundalk faced a charge of the murder of 43-year-old Irene White.
0: Niall Power it's kind of curious that he was actually known to 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 the family, while you know there was there was no connection to to Anthony Land. And Nile Power was known to Irene's family.
1: Yeah, Nile Power would have been known in the local community and to directly to uh, Irene's family He would have been in business with Irene's husband Alan as well, uh, which makes it even more depraved that he would have known Irene. He would have known known her well for several years, and that he would you know, have himself be involved in this murder enterprise makes it even more shocking, and that he elicited Anthony Lamb, who essentially directed him to carry out the murder. He was a businessman from Dundalk, and he also implicated a third person who I suppose is referred to as the mastermind for legal reasons. He can't be named at this stage. And it kind of painted a picture to Gardy of what happened here. You had the mastermind who, in cahoots with no power, they directed Anthony Lamb, who with no knowledge of Irene White, he wouldn't have known, or wouldn't have any personal grievance toward it whatsoever, they directed him to carry out the murder for I think it was a few thousand euro, maybe up to twenty-five thousand euro, and he was only paid two thousand in the end for
0: what he had done. Nowadays, DNA technology has moved on so much. Mobile phone technology has, has has moved on. This case is a classic example of ultimately you need somebody to come forward with key information that will basically implicate people.
1: That's it, and you, you kind of see in these cold cases or even you know certain investigations that have been going on for more than ten years. Gardy come out and always appeal that there's somebody who knows something and you know they may have not been in a position at the time to come forward and say something, as with Auntie Lamb's partner at the time, she wouldn't have been in a position to come forward immediately. But there's always somebody who knows something. If it's not the person directly involved, then they normally tend to speak out. We've seen it with the the Adrian Donahue murder investigation where Aaron Brady was in New York uh, boasting about what he'd done. And it took several years for people in that case to come forward and give evidence against him. But there's always somebody who knows something and... At the time, they may be able to say it, but certainly Gary always hold out hope that times change, circumstances change, relationships might have changed, and a certain pressure people might have been under might change. So there's always hope that people who have information or confessions made to them basically can come forward and help solve these types of cases.
0: After the court case, you have a a very moving witness statement um, from Irene's family and from Jennifer. And... Basically they're saying she had a suspicion that she would be killed.
1: Yeah, it came to light I think a few months or maybe a few years publicly after murder that Irene had raised concerns about personally in a diary she'd written and with friends about her safety and I think uh, People, I think family may have went through the diary and seen that she raised concerns about a particular person threatening her and she wrote something along the lines of he's told me that he'll kill me and he'll have an alibi for what he done. And she also confessed to a friend about three or four weeks or confided in a friend three or four weeks before the murder that she was in fear for her life. Now how seriously those concerns were taken at the time, it's hard to tell. It could have been something that was just said and maybe not taken as seriously by her friends, but unfortunately, as it came to show in kind of early April 2005, those concerns were very real, and unfortunately she lost her life that week.
0: So basically at this point, you've got a murderer in jail, you've got the person who hired uh, the murderer, uh, a middleman in jail. Take us forward now to where we are at, and there is still this mastermind in the background. Uh,
1: We have the killer. We have the so-called middleman. um, But we've yet to find and have prosecuted the mastermind. That guard investigation is very much still alive. And a main part of it was trying to elicit formal statements from Anthony Lamb and Niall Power to implicate the mastermind in what he had done. And I think there were concerns from one, if not both, about implicating him. Not so much because they're afraid of the mastermind and his reach and what he might do, but more so of their own kind of fear of being implicated as a rat or a tout in prison for giving evidence against another person. So that, was that certainly in recent years has been a real focus of Gardy of trying to get these two men, to who've obviously been convicted and admitted to what they've done, but to go that step further and make informed statements against the mastermind. That investigation has in a way concluded or at least reached a certain point earlier this year when Gardy submitted a file for review to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And in this file is all the evidence they've gathered, um, CCTV, witness statements... And Gardy can make a recommendation in this file if they so wish to do. And in the file that was sent to the DPP this year, Gardy recommended that this mastermind is charged with the murder of Iron White. So Gardy have always maintained and now have formally stated that they believe they have enough evidence to charge this mastermind with her murder. And decisions wait from the DPP who may come back directing a charge. They may direct a lesser charge or they may say there's no prosecution and no case to answer. So we wait the decision and Gary is wait to hear back from the DPP about that uh, file that's sent in.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're 18 years on now from, from the murder, still a very active investigation. And, and this will in effect be a, the, the final chapter uh, to this murder investigation if there is a, a prosecution brought here.
1: It definitely will. And as we said, you know, we've two people convicted so far, but I don't think Iron White will ever have true justice until the third person, the mastermind, the individual who actually set the wheels in motion to this murder enterprise, is brought before the courts and brought to justice. So while, you know, you've two people there convicted of the murder, I think justice and the case will finally conclude properly into a positive end once this person is brought before the courts for what he had done. He didn't get his own hands dirty, he got other people to do it for him but he's very much as guilty, if not more guilty, as the other two people in this kind of joint enterprise. And I think the real goal is now making sure that that person answers for what they've done.
0: Arian White's daughter, Jennifer, gave a touching tribute to her mother in her own victim impact statement. The 6th of
1: April 2005 was a day filled with tremendous pain, sorrow, heartache, and complete and utter devastation. To even think of the torture our gentle, loving mam had to endure in the last moments of her life will haunt us forever. I got to spend 17 treasured years with our mam filled with memories throughout my childhood. My younger siblings were robbed of those precious moments. Hopefully, as we move forward, we as a family can continue in the process of getting some sort of closure and you, ma'am, may finally be able to rest in peace, knowing that you will get the justice you deserve.
0: And my thanks to Robin Schiller for joining me today. If you've been affected by today's podcast, you may find a list of support services at independent.ie slash helplines. I'm Fiona Chian, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Gareth Mulhall, researched by Aveen Fallon, sound by Gavin Hennessy, and with voiceover by Tabitha Monahan. Archive clips from Virgin Media News, News Talk, and RTE. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review.